Section 18 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13 Mortimer's Cross and the Second Battle of St. Albans. The overwhelming disaster at Wakefield did not ruin the Yorkist cause, but it had removed some of the chief men of the party. The death of Duke Richard of York, had it occurred earlier, would have removed one great cause of the war. By this time, however, the war did not concern merely the position of Richard of York or the kind of ministry which Henry VI should trust. The cause of the war was now deep discontent among a section of the governing classes with the Lancastrian dynasty and its administration. So although the great duke was gone, the party of opposition remained. Yet it might have been expected that the loss of their head would leave the Yorkist party so weak that at most they could only keep the Lancastrian party in check and make a deadlock, so that all orderly government would be further off than ever. The speedy triumph of the Yorkist party on the morrow of two great defeats proves that the discontent felt with their opponents was deeper than appeared, and that the Yorkist cause really had the tacit approval of a solid part of the nation which did not take part in the battles. The ability of Warwick, the firmness of young Edward alone, would not have sufficed, but joined with a somewhat latent approval on the part of the towns and more settled parts of the country, these qualities of Edward and Warwick were sufficient to establish the Yorkist cause at last. At the time when his father was killed at Wakefield, Edward was on the Welsh march at Shrewsbury, ready to meet any attempt from Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke. When he heard of the rout at Wakefield, and that the men of the north were marching south on London, he immediately resolved himself to leave the march, and to hasten with all available forces into the Midlands, where joining with the Earl of Warwick, the two together might meet the northern army before it could reach London. But suddenly came other news that Jasper Tudor and James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire, had collected a strong force including Frenchmen and Breton and Irish, and were raising all the country beyond the march. Edward, who was now at Hereford, having already started on his march into the Midlands, turned back and met them at Mortimer's Cross on the Welsh march, about halfway between Ludlow and Hereford. The battle took place on February 2nd. The Yorkist force seems to have been much superior in numbers. Before the battle, the sun is said to have appeared in the east as three separate suns, and then to have joined together again. Edward therefore knelt down and made his prayers and thanked God. And anon, freshly and manly, he took the field upon his enemies, and put them at flight, and slew of them three thousand men, and some of their captains were taken and beheaded. But Pembroke and Wiltshire stole away, privily disguised, and fled out of the country. There is very little known about the battle. The rout must have been complete if three thousand of the enemy were slain. The House of York had great estates in that part of the march, and it is likely that its tenants would give little quarter to any fugitives. Like the Lancastrians after Wakefield, Edward showed much cruelty after the victory in his treatment of the more important prisoners. Among these was Owen Tudor, the father of Jasper, 
Earl of Pembroke. Owen was founder of the great Tudor house by his marriage with Queen Catherine, the widow of Henry V, who had brought to that monarch the fatal inheritance of half France. Owen was beheaded in the marketplace of Hereford and his head set up on the market cross. To the very last, he could not believe that he would be executed, not till he saw the axe and the block, and when that he was in his doublet, he trusted in pardon and grace till the collar of his red velvet doublet was ripped off. Then he said, That head shall lie on the stock that was wont to lie on Queen Catherine's lap and put his heart and mind wholly unto God, and full meekly took his death. When the head was severed from the body, a mad woman combed his hair and washed away the blood from the face, and got candles, and set them around burning to the number of a hundred. Edward, when his forces were wrested from the battle, pursued his way through the Midlands to join Warwick. Before the junction could be effected, the forces of the Earl had suffered a tremendous defeat on the site of a former Yorkist victory, St. Albans. Queen Margaret had come from Scotland and joined the northern forces at York after the Battle of Wakefield. A council of the chiefs of the army was held, and the resolution was formed to march forthwith upon London to get the king out of Yorkist hands. This plan is marked by all the characteristic boldness and energy of Margaret. The Lancastrian army, which is said to have now contained Scots and Welsh, as well as men of the north, crossed the Trent and marched southwards, following much the same line as that which is now used by the Great Northern Railway. As they went, they left behind them only plundered and burned towns, for the northern men claimed it as a right to plunder freely anywhere south of the Trent. A track of destruction was left behind them at Grantham, Stanford, Peterborough, Huntington, Melbourne, Royston, and so on for the rest of the journey. At Dunstable on February 16th they had an encounter with a party of Yorkists who are said to have been led by a butcher of that town. The Queen's army was successful, and the Yorkists lost 200 men, the butcher is said for shame and sorrow to have hanged himself. Warwick had put himself at the head of a large force raised chiefly from London and from Kent. With them were the King, the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Arundel, Lord Berkshire, Lord Bonville. When the Queen's army reached St. Albans, Warwick had already made a fortified camp and established his army in it on a field at the north end of the town called Barnet Heath. He had also stationed a body of archers in the center of St. Albans around the Great Cross. Warwick's camp was a strong one, for he had a good force of artillery, protected by an elaborate system of network and palisade full of projecting nails. He had obtained from the friendly country of Flanders a body of Burgundian musketeers, to use a modern word hardly applicable to them, for each man had to rest his gun on a stand with a considerable chance of the clumsy weapon injuring himself rather than the enemy, as indeed happened in the battle which ensued, for the wind being in the faces of the musketeers, the flame from their guns was blown back in their faces, and eighteen were burned to death. The battle was fought on February 17, 1461, in the afternoon, 
The forces which actually took part in the fight were 5,000 on each side. The Queen's army, which was commanded by the Duke of Somerset, a skillful leader, consisted mainly of feudal retainers from the north, grouped under their separate lords, each wearing their lord's badge that every man might know his own fellowship by his livery. They all wore also the livery of the Queen's son Edward who was with them. This livery was a bend of crimson and black with a design of ostrich feathers. The vanguard was led by the veteran Andrew Trollope. The Yorkist forces were evidently taken by surprise. Their scouts or outposts were quite at fault. Their prickers came not home to bring no tidings how nigh that the queen was, save one came and said she was nine mile off. So everything was to seek and out of order. The advance guard of the Lancastrians entered St. Albans, but was driven back in flight by the archers posted round the cross. However, the rest of the Queen's army pushed up to the north end and attacked the main camp of the Yorkists. In confusion and surprise, Warwick's men made little use of their artillery. Their leaders attempted to change the formation of the line of battle so as to meet the assailants better, but in the critical time between the breakup of the old formation and the completion of the new, the Queen's forces were upon them. It is said that there was treachery in the Yorkist camp on the part of a certain Lovelace, captain of Kent. In the middle of the battle, the king was able to go over to the queen's side. This could hardly have been possible without some help from men within Warwick's forces. Henry is said to have broken his word by so doing, but it is difficult to attach much blame to him. Warwick and Norfolk were glad to escape with their lives, leaving about half of their men dead behind them. The king celebrated the victory and the reunion with his family by knighting his son, Edward, Prince of Wales, who was now just under eight years old. He also knighted the old soldier of Calais, Andrew Trollope, who had gone over to the king's side at Ludford, and who since that time had been with Somerset at Guine, and now again had brought luck to the Lancastrians at Wakefield and St. Albans. Trollope could scarcely move owing to a wound in his foot. Although but a rude soldier, he made a good speech to the prince in acknowledging the honor of knighthood. My lord, he said, I have not deserved it, for I slew but fifteen men, for I stood still in one place, and they came unto me, but they bowed still with me. Another sequel to the victory was much less pleasant, and showed that English manners in warfare had now degenerated. It seems to have become a matter of course that any victory of one party should be followed by the execution of notable prisoners from the other. But in this instance, the executions were peculiarly distasteful owing to the fact that they were carried out in the presence of the queen and her eight-year-old son. It is even said that the boy was taught to pronounce the fatal sentence. According to Warin, Queen Margaret put the question to the Prince Edward. Fair son, with what death shall these two knights die whom you see there? Referring to Sir Thomas Carreal and his son. And the prince replied, that their heads should be cut off. Another great Yorkist to suffer death was Lord Bonville. Thus the victory of Queen Margaret was completed. The Yorkist forces had been scattered and London lay open to the victors. 
as has so often occurred in history the question arose should a bold advance at once be made upon the capital it is the same question as faced hannibal after cannae gustavus adolphus after breitenfeld charles i after edgehill and brentford london with its wealth its dignity was the most substantial support of the yorkist cause but now there was no army between the queen and the city and behind her was a large force flushed with the success of battle irresistible in its ardour so at least thought many people at the time the city of london showed a certain readiness to meet the queen by sending two noble mediators immediately after the battle these were the duchess of bedford and the duchess of buckingham it was expected hourly that the queen would be in london and the two great yorkist prelates thomas birchier archbishop of canterbury and george neville bishop of exeter remained prudently in canterbury awaiting the issue of events but the lancastrians did not advance instead they retired from st albans to dunstable and this was the ruin of king henry and his queen it was generally believed at the time that the king and queen refrained from advancing upon london wishing to save the citizens from the horrors of a sack at the hands of the victorious army for they deemed that the northern men would have been too cruel in robbing if they had come to london the city was not in a very defensible condition and william of worcester believed the citizens would not have shown fight if they the king and queen had come with their army to london they would have had all things as they wished certainly the londoners during these wars never showed any tendency to resist a victorious army but on this occasion there are indications that the lancastrians would not have entered without a blow the citizens stopped and appropriated to themselves a train of provisions bread and victual which the mayor and aldermen were sending with a certain sum of money to propitiate the queen moreover the force which the queen had sent under sir baldwin fulford to secure westminster was beset there by the londoners and prevented from going any further one london chronicler believed that the king did not dare to make the attempt and so the king and the queen proposed for to come to london and do execution upon such persons as were against the queen but the commons of the city would not suffer them nor none of hers to enter into london and so they turned northward it was known of course that edward of march was on his way with an army from wales and even if henry had obtained an entry into london his position would have been a very awkward one with hosts of turbulent citizens within and the victorious army from mortimer's cross without so the royal forces retired unto york as the elizabethan chronicler hollinshed puts it the queen having little trust in essex less in kent and least of all in london departed from st albans into the north country where the foundation of her aid and refuge only rested End of section 18